Today's episode of Dead Rabbit Radio contains disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, I'm actually adding this in a couple days after the original episode came out to issue a second warning. I've actually gotten quite a few complaints about how dark and disturbing this episode is. The first story is totally fine if you just want a standard Dead Rabbit Radio episode. But the second story, people are saying it's the most disturbing story on the podcast. I disagree. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, it is disturbing. It's a terrible story. I think I we've covered stuff that was... I don't know. <laughs> they might have a point. They might have a point. But anyways, uh, it, it, the second story is really, really dark. So I'm just adding this in. A lot of people were not prepared for where it went. So listener beware. But the first story is just standard Dead Rabbit Radio fare. And I hope you enjoy at least the first half of this episode. A family sees a bizarre and terrifying sight standing in their front yard. And then we travel to Nebraska to take a look at a cult known as the True Israelites, a white supremacist group that was founded to prepare for the Battle of Armageddon. But while they are getting ready to wage war on the forces of darkness, the darkest parts of humanity come out. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun out there in the world. Brand new year, 2023. We got a ton of stuff to cover, so first off, walking into Dead Rabbit Command is a longtime supporter of the show and now a Patreon of the show. Everyone give it up for Hezer. Woohoo, yeah! Walk on in, Hezer. Walk on into Dead Rabbit Command. Awesome, awesome. Hezer, you're going to be our captain, our pilot of this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, I totally get it. I do. Just help spread the word about the show. That helps out so much. It really, really does. Now, I said in the intro that this is a disturbing episode, but the first story isn't. So if you want to listen to the first story, it's totally safe. Unless you're easily scared. And then then I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. Everything would be disturbing. Hezer, let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the Jason Jalopy. We are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. Drive us all the way out. To a suburban neighborhood. I found this story on phantomsandmonsters.com. It's an amazing website if you're into the bizarre. Phantoms and Monsters is run by a paranormal researcher named Lon Strickler. I highly recommend going to that website. It's great. I check it out every day. That's where I got this story from. And he says, we don't know exactly where the story took place. But he said, somewhere in the United States. Because what happens is a lot of people send user reports directly to Lon Strickler, or he, like me, like most paranormal researchers, are just scouring the web looking for these amazing stories. So we're in the United States. It's September 12th, 2015. And there's this father, we're going to go ahead and call him Sam, he doesn't give his name, but Sam, he's standing in the front yard of his house, and his family is just pulling up. I don't know how he lucked out and didn't have to go on this excursion, he's just got to stay at home. Watch television, but now his peace and quiet is being destroyed because his family's back home. He's standing there in the driveway, and the family van pulls up, and he sees his family inside. And then something catches his eye. And he looks a little bit over to his right, and he sees, standing there, and it's not right next to him. We'll say it's maybe like 50, 60 yards. I think that's fair. Standing there is 
Have you guys have you guys ever seen a nightmare before Christmas? It was Jack Skellington. Now don't get your autograph books out. <laughs> don't move to this place in the United States. We don't know where it's at with your autograph book. It, it looks like Jack Skellington. That's who he directly compared it to. He goes, I look over and I see this tall, gangly limbed humanoid that reminded me of Jack Skellington from A Nightmare Before Christmas. Not directed by Tim Burton, by the way. The movie's often... Surprised there's not a lot of Mandela effect stuff about that. It's not directed by Tim Burton. He looks over and he... Now you're, now you're pausing the episode to Google that. He looks over and he sees this giant Jack Skellington. And giant, it's seven feet tall. It's this seven feet tall, long-limbed, gangly creature. But it's completely jet black. No nice little suit. Jason <laughs> Quinn. Okay, we get it. It kind of looks like Jack Skellington. You don't have to go. He's like, but his voice sounded different. Well, he does have one more difference. He's completely jet black. And his head is jet black as well. But it's in the shape of like a classic gray alien head. Not this weird pumpkin, like, you know, perfectly round head like Jack Skellington. But anyways, he looks over. He has his autograph book ready. He's like, uh -huh. It's this seven foot tall, jet black, gangly limbed creature with a head that looks like a gray alien, but everything else is like Jack Skeleton. And it begins walking down a cement path on his property. It'd be one thing to just turn and look and see something standing there like that. Just standing. And as time passed, you'd go, maybe it was a tree. It's still out there. You're decorating it for Christmas. It's like, oh. But you know what I mean? If you saw something like that and then you looked away and it was gone, you could be like, oh, maybe it was just a figment of my imagination. But it starts walking. It's kind of, it's kind of hard once it's moving within our world. It's really kind of hard to blow that off. It begins walking. And despite its size, it's moving pretty fast. He said it was walking about twice the speed of the human. Even factoring in the large steps, he was saying it was moving faster than it looked like it could move. And even though he saw no proof of that, looking at this entity, he knew, he just got this impression on him that it was incredibly strong. Despite the thin limbs, he just got this sense that this thing's much faster than it looks, and it's also far stronger than it looks. And he sees it walk down this cement path on his property, walks by the street, walks underneath a streetlight, walks onto a gravel pathway, and then past the side of Sam's house to where he lost view of it. That's quite, a, that's quite a little journey, right? You're watching it the whole time it's moving. And once it moves past the side of the house and Sam's lost view of it, the doors of the van open up. The family van that's been sitting there in the driveway, the van door opens up, and Sam yells to his family, Did you see that? That's all he said. Did you see that? And his sister, who was in the car, responded, It was all black. It was her exact quote. 
That's the way to do it, actually. That's like a pro-paranormal researcher move. When I did on-the-ground paranormal research, I'm out there with a group, and I see something. I see some sort of phenomenon or entity or whatever it is. I would always say, do you see that over there? And then I'm like, with Steve or Josh or Jackie, whoever ever I'm with, they'll look over there, and I'll wait for them to describe what I've already seen. If I go, hey, look over there, you see that clown crying by the edge of the creek? If they say, yeah, I see the clown by the edge of the creek, they could be trolling me. They could be, um, I could be leading them on. They could be having another experience. But if I go, hey, look over there, and someone's like, oh my God, is that a clown down there crying? You see, there's a big difference because you have two different people observing a phenomenon from different angles. Now you can go, okay, that most likely was a real phenomenon. So that's very interesting. That's the way that played out. He knew exactly what he... Well, he didn't know what it was he was looking at. It's some sort of creature, but... He goes, did you see that? And she responds, it was all black. That means this was not just a trick of the light. This was not just an issue of one person having too much to drink or having a mental breakdown or something like that. And he goes, I haven't seen anything since. Came out in the yard. That was back in 2015. Came out in the yard, I saw this giant creature walk by. I mean, what was it doing? I don't know. What was it? I don't know. And he hasn't seen anything since, but it's not the first time he's seen something odd. He said, when I was a kid, we would go to visit my grandpa all the time. We'd always drive down the same road to get to grandpa's house. And he goes, when I was a kid one day, I was sitting in the car. Family was driving out to go see Grandpa. And on this road, there's a road sign. We've driven past this road sign a hundred times. But this particular day, we're driving, and we're approaching the road sign, and I see from behind the road sign a long insect-like slash robot-like arm. This huge robot-esque insect-like arm would come out from behind the sign. And this is, you know, road sign. He doesn't specifically say if it was a yield sign or a stop sign or something like that, but it's road signs in America... They're fairly small. You can't really hide something that can have a giant arm come out. And it's interesting because he says insect-like, robot-like. I'm also wondering how slender it is. But he'll watch this arm, this long arm, come out from behind the sign. And it would try to grab onto their car as it drove past. He'd sit there, he'd crane his neck and look back, and the sign was totally normal. The car continued on its journey. No one else in the car noticed it. Or if they did, they didn't say anything. And it's honestly doubtful if Sam said anything either. Because when we see stuff that's unexplainable, people are going to make fun of you. That's just the way it is. He goes, we were driving by when I was a kid and I saw this long robotic insect arm come out from behind the sign to try to grab the car as we drove past. And then, years later, as a teenager, I was driving the car. I was headed out to Grandpa's house. 
I was coming up to that road sign that we had passed a hundred times before I saw the arm and a hundred times afterwards. And I'm driving this car to Grandpa's house and I'm approaching that sign and all of a sudden, a long, insect-like, robot-like arm reached out and tried to grab the car. Weird, super bizarre phenomenon. Super. Th this is what I talk about when we have a lot of these stories. If you see a ghost, you know who to report it to. If you see a UFO or an alien, you know who to report it to. If a, and those were his words, quote, insect-like, robot-like arm. That's because he was just having a hard time trying to describe it. If you see that, who do you report that to? What, cla what classification of phenomenon is that? There's so many stories like this where you're, like, even the tall Jack Skeleton creature. Sure, it had a gray alien head, but does he report it as a UFO? Does he report it as a cryptid? That's a great thing about websites like Phantoms and Monsters. They're just a repository for these bizarre stories. But these little paranormal stories that don't fit the mold, they just, a lot of times, go unreported. What's interesting is the robot insect arm, we've encountered that before on the show. When I read that story, it reminded me of one of my favorite episodes of Dead Rabbit Radio, The Alien Invasion of Casablanca, California. Put it in the show notes. And these kids are out playing in their yard, and a series of arms, all of these arms begin to materialize straight out of the air around them, and they're trying to grab these kids. And a bunch of kids witnessed this. I don't remember the exact number, 8 or 10 or something like that. A bunch of kids were having to <laughs> having to knock off these arms like they're swatting away these arms, reaching out of nothingness to grab them. So, I mean, I, when we when we covered that story, it's it was so bizarre. It was like a one-off event. Definitely felt alien. But here, we, know, we don't know where this story took place. It took place in the United States. This, this story may have taken place in or around the area of Casablanca, California. Who knows? But a fascinating story. We have the giant cryptid, alien, what have you, in the front yard that more than one witness saw. Then we have the robot arm reaching out from behind the sign. And you wonder, right, what if it had grabbed the car? What was that? You know, you think, is it an omen? Like, was it warning that? Who knows? I mean, it's real, just a really cool story, I think. I think it's a really cool story because we, 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 we can extrapolate, like, what if this happened? What if that happened? fascinating stuff. And I'll also put in the show notes, because I know some of you guys may not have been reminded of the Casablanca story. You might have been reminded of that time I went to that haunted Wendy's. And I saw that huge arm-like thing. Like, again, it's hard to describe sometimes. It was a huge arm or a huge appendage came out of the drive through window. Like, it was impossible for this thing to be this big and to come out the angle that it did, but it it did. I'll put that episode in the show notes. It's crazy, and I just love little stories like this. Hezer, let's go ahead and fuel up the Carpenter Copter. We're going to leave behind this suburban neighborhood. We got all of our signs at Jack Skellington merchandise. Throw it in back and take us out of here. We're headed all the way out to Nebraska. <laughs> Final warning before we get started. This story that I'm about to cover is super disturbing. I actually had this 
I, I think I've had this story ready to go for maybe two years. It's been in my maybe folder. Not because I don't think it's a good story, but because it's so disturbing. I've just kept it there. The reason why we're pulling it out now is Hezer, longtime supporter of the show, recent Patreon supporter, he sent us two of the most disturbing stories we've covered on the show. He sent us End of the Wicked, which was a... It's a true story about a movie in Africa that... I think it was Nigeria specifically, but off the top of my head, I'm not for sure. A movie that was made that has influenced hundreds of murders of children. A crazy true crime story slash paranormal slash conspiracy story. I love it. Hezer sent us that. Hezer also sent us the story of the Ant Hill Kids. This crazy cult. If Off the top of my head, I think it was in Canada. Where they were committing these despicable acts in service of this cult. So I figured, Hezer, you sent us some disturbing stuff. We're going to get you on the carpenter copter. I'm going to dust off this story that I've had sitting around for two years. Strap in. If you're still here, it's just me. As they're in the carpenter copter, everyone else parachuted out. They're like, see you tomorrow. If you do happen to still be in the carpenter copter, strap in. It's the early 1980s. And in Richardson County, Nebraska, there's a group of people starting to form. It's a fairly informal group to begin with. But they're starting to follow the teachings of a man named Michael Wayne Ryan. Michael is a truck driver by trade, but he begins to see visions in the sky. He begins to see a prophecy unfold in front of him. The Battle of Armageddon is coming. He's talking around town. He's telling people that... The end of the world is here. And we all know it. Look what's going on in the world. We got international terrorism. Gas prices are sky high. The economy is barely hanging on. You can't board a plane without worrying that someone is going to blow it out of the sky. Can't go into a big city without thinking someone's going to put a knife to your throat and mug you. Society's falling apart. Look around. This is the end days. But God is giving me a message. God is showing me the way to save ourselves. Are you ready to be saved? He starts to build this group of people. Now other people in Richardson County are like, the guy's a lunatic. He's just a weirdo. He's just talking all of this death and destruction and whatever. It's Nebraska. People are living their own lives. And really nowadays, too, sometimes you'll see stuff pop up on Facebook and you're just like, whatever, that guy's weird. That guy kind of has a weird political view or he's a little too extreme. But you just let it go. That that, that It's just kind of the way things are. You never imagine it's going to get as bad as it can get. And most of the time it doesn't. Michael begins to form this philosophy and begins to recruit members to realize that they are the true Israelites. You see, the Bible wants to talk about the Jews. By the way, this guy's super racist. (laughs) This guy's super racist. This is a white supremacy group. He goes, the Bible wants to talk about the Jews being the chosen people, but they're not. They're wrong. 
the true Israelites is who God was referring to. The true Israelites is who Jesus and the disciples were referring to. And we are the true Israelites. And I know that because I've seen the visions. I've been told this by Yahweh himself, the true name of God. I bet you your minister doesn't always talk about Yahweh. But Yahweh talks to me. Your minister reads out of a book. Is he talking? Is he talking to Yahweh himself? No, he's not. He's reading a book full of lies. It's been completely corrupted by worldly forces. Now, I'm going to tell you that the Battle of Armageddon is coming. But it's not going to happen in some far-off place that we've never been to. It's going to happen here in Nebraska. It's going to happen soon. And our own people are going to be in the front lines of this battle. The UN's going to send in their global troops. The godless forces of the United States government are going to come down here. They're going to kill the true Israelites. So what we need to do is we need to get weapons. More weapons than we already have. I know everyone here owns at least two guns. We need more than that. And we've got to fight this war for God. We've got to get ready for war. This group begins to fund its activities through burglaries. They're stealing stuff. They're selling it. I'm assuming they're just not like, ooh, I have this new boombox. And he's like, uh, yeah, we need guns. Unless that boombox is Soundwave, go sell it and buy yourself a gun, another gun. And they begin to amass this huge collection of weapons. That's totally legal in the United States, though. You can have a bunch of guns. You can also believe dumb things. You can believe that Battle of Armageddon is going to happen in Nebraska. You can believe that you're the true Israelites. None of that stuff's illegal. This cult grows to around 21 people. Ten of them are children. Which you would think, well, that's not really good for the Battle of Armageddon. I'd want to have more adults. But children are the future. Whitney Houston told us that. Children are the future. A cult needs kids, and they can a lot of times be better soldiers because you can brainwash them far easier than an adult. And he has this test that he does. It's called the arm test. For example, let's start robbing people's houses to raise money to fund our activities. You may think, well, if we're the true Israelites, if God is on our side, then why should we have to burgle any houses? So what happens is, let's get you up here, and you're going to put your arm straight out to its side. You're going to hold it up as hard as you can. Now, I'm going to stand up next to you. I'm going to get behind you. I'm going to put one hand on your shoulder and one hand on your wrist. And I say, Yahweh, do you want us to burgle these houses? If the answer is yes, no matter how hard I push down on your arm, like I'm holding... Left hand's on your shoulder, right hand is on your wrist. No matter how hard I push down on your wrist, your arm will not budge. You have Yahweh inside you for that moment. No matter how hard I push, it will not go down. And that means yes. Yahweh is answering yes to whatever question you have. So Yahweh is saying, yes, I want you to become robbers. But if I put my arm on your shoulder and I push down on your wrist and it goes down... 
And the answer is no. It's the perfect way to communicate with an omnipotent being. What's interesting is that's super easy to fake. Right? It's super easy to fake. If I grab you, the second person is the one asking the question. Maybe I don't put a ton of force. If a bunch of people are watching us, right, I can pretend I'm putting on a lot of force. You may feel like I'm putting on a lot of force, but I'm not, and your arm stays up. But if I want the answer to be no, it could probably really hurt you to get that arm down. Because Yahweh would never let your arm go down, no matter how much force I put on it. It's it's a pretty good trick. For a group of people who are already brainwashed and they're believing everything you're saying. There's a farmer, a local farmer named Rick Stice, who really, really gets into this philosophy of the true Israelites. So Rick Stice, his wife passed away. It's just him and his three kids. They have this huge farm, and the cult's been around for about a year or two at this point. Rick says, hey, why don't you bring your cult and live at my farm with me? I would love to do that for Yahweh and you, Michael. Because at this point, Michael has declared himself an archangel. He's not just a man of flesh and blood. He is more than that. So come live on my farm. Bring everybody. All the members. Everyone come out to this farm. So they do. 21 people. Well, you already have the four people living there. Rick Stison's three kids. But then the rest of them come to this farm. And something happens where Michael becomes jealous of Rick. Could have been something super petty. It could have been people just really liking the farm and being like, wow, that really is cool that Rick's letting us use this farm. Wow, this is awesome. Like, Look at all this stuff. And it's something that Michael couldn't have provided for them. They're basically just a, a group of burglars. Or maybe Michael just woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day. He hates Rick. And he demotes Rick to the level of slave status in the group. You got to do everything we say. And Rick is already totally bought into this philosophy. He's being made a slave for some reason. Why would an archangel lie? I'll be slave status. It's March 1984. Michael's control over the group is absolute at this point. No one even questions anything he does. Well, if you do question it, well, let's just do an arm test. Let's see what Yahweh has to say about that. I guess Yahweh really wants us to do this weird thing that Michael just mentioned. Okay, well, you know, can't argue with Yahweh. I saw him pushing down on that arm as hard as he could. And Oh, and here's another thing. I mean, the arm test is complete a complete joke. We know the trick behind it. But Michael said, you can't do the arm test. Oh, you have to cut. But Michael said, you can't do the arm test by yourself. You have to ask me for permission. So two members couldn't go in a bedroom and say, is Michael really the archangel? And then do this. And then you weren't allowed to do that. You had to ask him for permission. It's March, 1984. And at this point, Michael has begun to have visions that Luke Stice, the five-year-old son of Rick, is a child of Satan. And so they take Luke and they write 666 on his forehead and go, look, he's the mark of the, he's the mark of the beast. 
I put it on him myself, but he's a child of Satan. Rick will spend a portion of his day just chained up on the front porch. Just sitting there. When he's of no use to be a slave and to run and do all this work, they'll chain him up on the porch. And sometimes there's another man named James Thim who will also be chained up on the porch with him. He was another one who, for whatever reason, pissed Michael off somehow. But now Michael's saying, your five-year-old son Luke is the child of the devil. And everyone's like, oh, we knew there had to be at least one of those in this group. An interloper. A spy. So Michael says, Rick, do you believe me when I say that your five-year-old son is a servant of the devil? A child of the devil, not just a servant, like he was devil DNA in him. Rick goes, I, I, I do. Like, if you're telling me that, and I trust you absolutely, I do believe that my son has devil DNA in him. Michael says, beat your child. I want you to beat him up right in front of me. Let's do it. Rick looks at his five-year-old son punches him right in the face. Blow after blow after blow, he's raining down punches and kicks on his own child. Who has to not even be able to comprehend anything that's going on. Like, at five, you obviously know what's going on in the world. What, what five, you're kind of like in kindergarten, first grade. You're not a dummy. He's not a mewling baby. He knows something's been different since his mom died. But he's young enough to go, maybe this is what all five-year-olds go through. I don't know. Maybe all kids just have 20 people walking around on their property one day. And people are constantly talking about God and... I, I can't, I, I, I have no context for any of this. But I do know that my dad shouldn't be punching me right now. And Rick beat Luke in front of Michael. There are other people there as well. It's, it's a test of loyalty, not just to Michael, but to Yahweh. He beat his son. And then Rick does... On one hand, a sensible thing, but on the other hand, an incomprehensible thing to any rational human. He leaves the cult. He just leaves the compound. His house, right? It was his house, his farm. He's out of there. That's that's a good idea. But he left his kids there. That's not a good idea. It's a terrible idea. That That's the worst idea you could think of. Now, we don't know, like, what Rick's reasoning was there. But he leaves the group, leaves his kids. But then, like, it's like seven days later, he comes back. Not to get his kids. He comes back to rejoin the cult. The cult that made him beat up his own child. And guys, strap in, because this is what that would. That was the. That was nothing compared to what's going to happen. Rick comes back to the cult. Michael goes, You know, you left. You weren't supposed to leave. Bring Luke into the room. So they go get this five year old boy. They bring him in. Michael's there. 
Rick's there. Other people are there. They had like this inner circle in the cult. Michael goes, Rick, I want you to have sex with Luke. I want you to have sex with your five-year-old son right now. Rick follows Michael's order. And he rapes his five-year-old son in front of all these cult members. After he was done, Michael says, Rick, I want you to hit Luke as hard as you can. Don't give some weak little punch. Because I'll know. Yahweh will know. And Yahweh will tell me. I want you to hit him as hard as you can. So Rick pulls back. And aiming straight for Luke's head. A powerhouse punch. Instantly. Knocks Luke unconscious. Luke never woke back up. He died a few hours later. Rick, I want you to go dig a grave for Luke. This child is Satan. Go dig a grave. We'll put him in there. Maybe God will have mercy on him, even though the devil had him in this life. Go take care of that. And as Rick was digging this grave, he ran away. He ran away. He left the cult again. But he left his two other children there. And he didn't tell anybody what happened. Didn't go to the cops. Didn't talk to anyone in the neighborhood. He just left. He doesn't come back. And at that point, Michael's full wrath is focused on James Thim. This was another guy. This was another guy who willingly joined the cult and 100% followed everything that Michael said. He really believed that Michael was an archangel. They were preparing for the end of the world. At this point, they had amassed quite a collection of weapons as well. And James was totally down with all of this stuff. He, in a way, couldn't figure out why he was chained up onto the porch, why people treated him poorly. But he figured that this is all part of God's plan. April 28th, 1985, James Thim, who does his best to toe the line and to be a good follower, he gets accused of all of these various acts of vandalism and blasphemy, all sorts of weird things just kind of come out of the woodwork. Real or imagined, all of these things get pointed at James Thim, including the worst of all was the turkey that everyone was going to eat. They had this turkey was poisoned with household chemicals. James was like, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't do, I would never do that to you, Michael. I didn't do that. Like, why would I do all this stuff? I'm totally, I didn't do this. Trust me. Please, please, please trust me. I didn't try to poison you. I didn't do all this other stuff I'm being accused of. 
And he didn't. James was innocent of these charges. He was just being accused of all this stuff. But how can you pass up the truth of the arm test? Like, sure, James, your alibi of being chained up on the porch is a pretty good alibi. I'm not going to lie. But let's do this arm test over here. Hey, Bruce, put your arm out straight. And I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder. I'll put my other hand on your wrist. And I'm going to push down as hard as I can. Yahweh. Did James Thim do all the stuff we said? And probably more we haven't found out yet. Michael pushes down on that wrist. Man, it looks like he's pushing hard, doesn't it? It looks like he's pushing real hard. But there's Bruce with his arm out. It's not even moving. No matter how hard Michael pushes, Yahweh gives Bruce the strength to hold back. He's strong enough to hold back the push of an archangel himself. James, you're clearly guilty of all these crimes. So they take James out to the barn. And it's him, Michael, a couple of his, what can only be described as goons at this point. I don't care if they give him the title of deacons or bishops or whatever. These goons... They take James out to the barn. And the first thing they do, one of them pulls out a pistol and shoots James right in the face. It's a pretty bad wound. It goes through cheek and bone. Muscle tissue is seared. As this hot round drills through him. But he's still alive. Just a face shot. Wasn't a head shot. Couldn't shoot him in the brain. Just shot him in the face. James falls down into the hay and he's holding the wound. Feels his own warm blood smear all over his hand. He's writhing in agony. This group's just standing around. I didn't do it. I didn't do it, guys. I didn't do it. I didn't do any of that stuff. Holding closed the wounds, trying to stop the bleeding. Michael turns to one of his goons and goes, Hey, hey. Go grab a goat. Goon comes back with one of the goats on the farm. Takes it into the makeshift cell. Really, it's just like a little corral in the barn. Takes the goat in. Michael says to James, James, I want you to have sex with that goat. What? What are you talking about? You just shot me in the face. Now you want me to have sex with a goat? I mean, I want to do it whether or not you shot me in the face, but just so we're clear, like, I I, I, I can't. I'm I'm in a lot of pain. It's a First off, it's a goat. I don't want to have sex with a goat. Secondly, I'm in a lot of pain. It's going to be kind of hard to concentrate. You know, I'm a guy. Sometimes it's easy to get a boner. Generally not, though. <laughs> He's been shot in the face, and there's a go here. And Michael goes, listen, I'm not telling you to do this. Yahweh is. You need to have sex with that goat. And it's possible that James did believe that Yahweh was given this order and would give him the strength to have sex with this goat. It's also possible that James, at this point, thought he would get out of this. Like, if he did what they said, 
Even though he'd already been shot in the face, they didn't kill him. And he knows. He knows about Luke. Well, that was child of Satan. He he needed to die. So James goes, well, that, that kid needed to die. But maybe if I do this, they'll let me go. So James, with an open wound, a fresh bullet hole in his face, has sex with his goat. At that point, two or three of the goons come into this little holding area where James is. And Michael goes, hey guys, you see that shovel over there? Shove it up his butthole. And they violated him, and they did massive internal damage into him. They tear his bowels. And then, as they're done with that, Michael goes, Oh, you know what, guys? Break his arm. So James is laying there on the ground, fresh bullet wound to his face. He's been horribly violated. One of the goons gets down. (coughs) Breaks his arm. Snaps his bone. Okay, boys. We're done here. You imagine James is laying there on the ground, relieved. Relieved. The pain that he's going through, he knows he needs medical attention. Maybe Yahweh, though. Maybe this was a test and Yahweh can heal him, but it's over with. They're done. Broke my arm. They did some unspeakable things. They shot me in the face, but they're done. I, I made it. Made it. But he realizes as these men are leaving, they're locking the barn up. They're done. But he's not. That was just day one. Next morning, Michael and his goons come back into the barn. They break one of his legs, then break the other. Michael brings in this tool. He holds it up. He goes, guys, you know what this is here? This here is used to take the skin off of a pig. You take skin off of any animal, but this one's specifically for taking skin off a pig. You guys want to see how it works? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's check it out. And Michael begins removing strips of skin off of James's broken legs. Michael then orders someone to grab Luke's left hand, hold his left hand out, while another person shot off his fingertips. You have to imagine at this point, I mean, James is fully conscious. James is fully aware of what's going on, and at a certain point, he has to realize this is never going to end. They've removed pieces of my skin, they've broken three of my limbs, they shot me, they've done internal damages, they're blowing my fingertips off one by one. Like, how much longer can this go on for? Please just let them kill me at this point. Like, I would rather just die. Please. Just get it over with. But we don't know if he had the strength to say any of that. 
But that is what happened. There was, at this point, mercy shown. Well, almost. They begin stomping on him. Kicking him and stomping on him. Until finally, they killed him. They stomped him to death. And then after he had died, one of the goons pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head. Two days of brutal torture for a man who never questioned the teachings of Michael, who willingly joined the cult, who devoted his life to the teachings of the true Israelites, and still was just not good enough. Or, I mean, again, or Michael just hated him, or Michael believed that he did do all of that destruction and did try to poison them. It's June 25th, 1985, so it's just a couple months later. Two cult members are arrested for stealing a piece of equipment, something known as a spraying rig. This burglary spree had still been going on. You're still selling the stuff to buy guns. They get arrested, and they're brought into the local police station. They're locked up in the cell, and these two cult members are sitting in the cell. And it had to have dawned on them, because at this point, all the cult members knew about... James. Luke was a child of the devil. He wasn't one of us. He didn't willingly join the cult. He just happened to be there when the cult showed up at the farm. But James, I mean, yeah, sure, he might have poisoned that turkey, but these two guys were sitting there and they had to be like, like, I actually feel safer in the cell. And the other guy looks over and goes, you know, I didn't want to be the first one to say it, but I actually feel pretty safe here as well. Like, this is probably the calmest place I've been in in two years. Sitting in this cell. No one's going to be doing arm tests. I'm not going to get accused of anything weird. And no one's going to get brutally tortured and murdered for days. I actually feel a little bit of peace here. These two cult members sitting in this jail cell go, you know what? Let's tell the police what is going on at that farm. Now, the police just think, the, the police know about the true Israelites. They know about this group out at the old Stice place. They do know about them. But again, it is not illegal to practice a religion or even a weird religion in the United States. It's not illegal to amass weapons. Nowadays, it's a little more, it can raise more red flags. But back in the 1980s, they're like, whatever. So these two cult members tell the police, hey, listen, it's not just about religion and getting weapons, and getting ready for the Battle of Armageddon. There's a couple people who've been murdered up there. There's a little boy, and then James. James was murdered, and I wasn't there, but from what I heard, it took a while. Eventually, the FBI, the local police, and the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, they end up raiding the compound, and they find all the guns, and they dig up the bodies. They find the body of Luke and the body of James. Those were the only two people who died in this experience. Now, the two people who got arrested, remember, they turned almost immediately and they sold everyone out. Rick didn't. Rick just left and didn't tell anybody what happened up there. Nothing. There was obviously a ton of arrests that were made due to the murders. That was really the big charge was the murders. You had nine different people who were charged with first-degree murder. 
Michael Ryan ended up being sentenced to death back on September 12th, 1985. A couple of the other members got the death penalty. Other ones got life in prison without parole, with parole. You had all these different things going on, all these different sentences. What's interesting is I cannot find... I'm not saying there's a conspiracy for it. It's just... I cannot find what, if any, sentence Rick Stice got. And it's also interesting because there's tons of different variations on what... On the story that I just told you. Little facts. I mean, some versions of it say that Rick punched his son so hard... His head hit a cabinet. Some say that he hit him or smashed him with a piece of wood. We're getting these different variations. I mean, at the end of the day, that he did kill his child with a single blow. There's versions of the story where Rick and James were both raising questions about the cult. I, mean, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. Like, what if this is actually all a big scam? There are other versions of the story where they were bootlicking members from day one. They 100% believed in the cause of the cult, of the true Israelites. So there's so many different variations. And these are important variations. So, well, how the kid, how Luke was punched to death, that's not... Well, here's a variation that I came across in my research. One of the versions is Rick originally was like, I'm not going to have sex with my son. And Michael said, if you don't, I'm going to cut off your dick. Which I think most fathers would be like, cut it off, dude. Like, seriously, cut it off. If that's the choice. But there's versions of the story where Rick was a stalwart defender in his son's honor. But he threatened to cut my dick off, so I had sex with my son. It's really interesting because obviously there are certain people who are telling the story. When when the two people turned this in, when the two people turned in the cult, then the police went to go find Rick Stice. Because they, they figured he left the group, whatever was going on up there, some weirdo, bunch of religious nuts. They didn't know anything about the bodies and Rick didn't say a word. He left and just went back to town. Well, eventually the... Feds, at a certain point when the FBI got involved, they found him. And they go, what happened up there? We're hearing all this stuff about you and your son, and he, he died. And it's interesting because we see these articles where like Rick was like fighting against the cult. His direct quote to authorities when they asked, why did you do it? He said, quote, I thought that was what was to be done. Unquote. He believed in the orders he was being given, no matter how horrific they were. Anyways, you had all these arrests. A bunch of members of Michael's family was involved in this as well. They were all arrested. His goons were arrested. The true Israelite compound was shut down. I have no... I can't find if Rick Stice got charged or what his sentence was. There, I just can't find it. I... I'm assuming he got charged with something because he didn't immediately turn state's evidence. It's not like the two guys could say, you know, we were just there. We just know what's going on. We didn't murder anybody. They can walk. Rick Stice murdered this kid. His kid! Tortured and raped and murdered his own child. And I can't find what his sentence was. Now, I'm going to say, if I do find it, I'm going to put it in right there. I'm going to edit it in because I'm going to still, but I I can never find it. Maybe one of you guys can. We'll do a little intro there, but 
Michael Ryan spent the rest of his life in prison. He was arrested in June of 1985. He was sentenced to death in September 1985. He died in 2015 of natural causes. So that's the story of the true Israelites. And it's a story that doesn't have a moral... It's not a story that we can dissect. Because it happens all the time. Like, these groups are pretty pretty normal, unfortunately. Nowadays, they seem to take the form of, like, a sex cult, right? Every so often you read the newspaper and it's some guy had a 50 women at some high-rise apartment. and Like, what was that one group that uh, Allison Mack was part of from Superman, from that Superman show, Smallville? Like, you know, just stuff like that. We see these sex cults popping up. From time and time again, we don't get a lot of these murder cults anymore, and and I'm that's a that's a I'm that's a compliment to humanity. I'd much rather have some guy pretending to be a yogi, and he's banging college coeds. I'd much rather have that. I understand why people join cults because they're looking for purpose. Everybody in the world feels like they're special, but they don't feel special. Super easy. To prey on people like that. And that's everybody. But for Michael to form the cult in the first place. Was he just some perverted sicko? Who wanted to watch people have sex with kids and goats? And Pornhub wasn't around yet? Or. Did he experience some sort of vision? Not from Yahweh. Maybe it was something far darker. Demonic in fact. That showed him the end of the world was coming and he needed to prepare himself and the people around him to fight off the forces of evil. But little did he know that he was the force of evil. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a good one.